Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on pod, ministerial pushbacks. Listen to General Mike Farnham fires back at Surrey Council as Global BC's Richard Dustman joins us with exclusive details on the Surrey police vote. And transphobia. We speak to the mother of a nine-year-old girl who was forced to endure anti-trans tirade at a kid's sporting event. And Vancouver City Council formally adopts new policy that will speed up housing approvals. How long is too long for the city promising a new housing swagger? That's all next on the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Let's discuss the Surrey policing situation. Now, yesterday at this time, we talked about information we had received regarding the Surrey Police Union. Uh, In that document uh, that I read out at this hour uh, yesterday, the police union had informed the Surrey Police Service that if Surrey Council decides to remain with the RCMP, uh, they do not wish to be part of that transition or their members don't don't want to be a part of that transition and they want to be let go and paid severance. Now, the total bill for that severance package is estimated at $72 million. All of this information is coming on, of course, just before a potential vote next week. Now, in April, as you know, the Ministry of the Solicitor General reviewed the city's plan to wind down the SPS. Minister Mike Farnworth strongly recommended at that time that the city keep the municipal force, warning that reverting back to the RCMP would damage policing elsewhere in the province and had offered Surrey up to $150 million Uh, to defray the transition costs. Now, today we learned another letter was sent by the Solicitor General uh, to Surrey Council. Joining me now to discuss the situation is Mike Farnworth, BC Solicitor General and Minister of Public Safety. Minister, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. What does this new letter say? Well, what it says is that um, I've uh, written to, uh, to the Mayor and Council um, acknowledging that, yes, they've signed the non-disclosure agreement, but my staff have been working with their staff on ensuring <clears throat> that they have all the information that they need when they have a vote to deal with the conditions that were placed um, on any transfer back uh, to the RCMP. And those conditions are mandatory conditions. They're not negotiable. Uh, and one of, the, um, one of the issues, of course, we wanted to make sure is that we had um, an understanding that that was the case and that we would be able to see the final draft of the report before it went to council to make sure that they were getting all the information, that they were making a decision uh, that took into account the conditions, but also the implications of the financial implications, the full costing for both police models, including timelines, costs, and such, and to make sure that there's safe and effective policing in, in Surrey and that, you know, when someone calls 911, they get, they get an officer. Um, and then we find out that, well, no, staff can no longer give us that, uh, that report. And so that is concerning. Um, and so I've written to the, the city saying it's important that the province, uh, the experts within my ministry, are able to, to review that so that they can provide any input and, 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 and we can make sure that, guess what, the council and the mayor have the full information uh, that there is a plan there uh, and that they know um, all the, the implications uh, associated with voting on it. So, Minister, uh, you and your staff spent months putting together that report that was released at the end of April, and uh, the, the council and the mayor have it. They signed the NDA, as you said. Now, this separate report that is put together by Surrey City Hall staff, the corporate report, uh, will be going to council, in which they will vote on, uh, many have said, vote on that report put together by Surrey uh, uh, City staff. What you're saying to me, and I just want to make sure um, I mm-hmm. get it right and, you're, and our audience gets it right, you're saying let's talk here so we have an agreed set of facts before you actually have a vote. That's correct. And that's why my staff have been working closely with Surrey staff uh, to ensure that that is in fact the case. Do you uh, work that when, 
sorry, sorry to cut you off there. So you're no. worried that whatever they're going to vote on may not be accurate. Your concern is that that information may not be accurate, uh, whether it's costing, resourcing, whatever it may be, compared to the report that you and your staff have put together over many months. We want to make sure that they have all the information, understand the implications of those conditions uh, that, uh, that I placed um, on a, uh, a transfer back to the RCMP. So in terms of understanding what the costs are, uh, what the implications are, what are the timelines, for example. And at the same time, that also applies to moving forward to the Surrey Police Service. So it's in essence, it is for both uh, police models. And so we think it's important that they're voting on a report that meets, that meets those conditions uh, that were placed on any move back to uh, the, uh, the, the, the RCMP, or for that matter, to continue with the Surrey Police Service. Should taxpayers not be concerned, sorry, taxpayers and BC taxpayers, as there's $150 million on the table here for this transition, that as a minister you have to send this letter, uh, especially in regards to a vote that is going to occur, um, you know, literally next Tuesday potentially here, that this is really last hour kind of stuff that you are concerned about here? It is concerning, um, you know, and it is, it, I think it is frustrating uh, for everybody. Um, you know, I know the uh, people in the city of Surrey want this issue resolved. We certainly do. And I know that the city does as well. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that uh, people, uh, my responsibility as Solicitor General is to ensure that there is, that when someone phones the police for 911, that there is someone responding, a police officer responding. And that doesn't matter whether it's for Surrey or the rest of the province. And that's why uh, when I made the strong recommendation I did, that there were those conditions that were placed on it. Uh, the city is aware of that. That's why we sent this, the, the, the first letter, and that's why I sent this follow-up letter, which is, look, we had, a, you know, my staff have been working with your, with your staff. They're, my staff are experts. Um, we want to make sure that everyone's got fully understand the implications. We know what the times are. The public knows, knows these things as well. Uh, and so now that we find out, well, no, we're not get, getting the, uh, the, the, the financial, the, the, you know, the final, the final draft before it goes to, to council to review and just make sure everything is, is as it should be in terms of, of the plan, um, then, you know, that causes me concern. And that's why I wrote the letter. Um, if they decide to continue with this present course of action where you are concerned and they end up voting on that corporate report that you and your staff have not been able to review uh, and they make a decision to say, we are going to revert back to the RCMP. What happens next? Um, what power under the police act do you have as Sol- solicitor general? Well, first off, those, uh, those conditions are, are mandatory. So those conditions would have to be met. Uh, they're not negotiable. Uh, they're not uh, a case of, oh, yeah, well, you know, if we feel like doing them, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll do them or, or we won't do them. No, they are, they are mandatory. They are uh, not negotiable. And the Police Act does give me the ability to make sure that they're fulfilled. So uh, I just want to clarify here. So uh, if they go with a corporate report and not uh, um, consulting with your staff and uh, and you, and they go and vote on it, let's just say they revert to the RCMP, and that is their decision with the the majority slate that they have. And if you feel those conditions uh, have not met, as you say, they are mandatory, you could reverse that vote. Um, I'm I'm sure you don't want to be put in that position, but at least potentially you could reverse that vote. They, they, they have to follow the conditions. Uh, that's what they have to do. Uh, and so uh, that's, you know, my, uh, that's why I've written a letter to make it clear. It's like, look, um, you know, we need to have a plan um, if you want to go back. 
and there were the conditions uh, spelt out as to what uh, has to be in that plan. And uh, uh, so sharing the, the information, your final report uh, with us um, will allow us to do that assessment uh, in terms of whether whether you, whether your plan is going to work, Minister, you've got a very busy couple of weeks. Uh, something tells me, so I appreciate your time today. I know you had a, a cabinet meeting. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. But first, let's talk about um, the Carousel Theatre in Vancouver. Now, not too long ago, the theatre was hosting two fundraisers. Uh, They're the biggest fundraisers uh, of the year for the theatre itself, uh, as it'll help support future performances, camps, and activities. But part of the reason for the fundraisers also... Uh, was because of concerns, uh, the theatre itself was a target of hate campaigns. They've received a significant amount of online harassment. Uh, the staff has, um, and it all happened uh, after uh, it was learned that the um, theatre itself was um, uh, hosting two upcoming youth drag camps. Uh, Maxine Bernier from the People's Party of Canada um, tweeted about the theatre, and since then there's been a significant amount of harassment directed at the Carousel Theatre in Vancouver. We thought we'd, it was time to catch up a little bit in regards to getting a sense of what's happening now and if hopefully things, um, you know, have gotten better for the theatre. Joining me now is Samantha Fox, spokesperson for the Carousel Theatre. Samantha, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jazz. So walk me through, uh, have things gotten better for the theatre and its and its employees? Hmm, not really. I mean, the harassment is ongoing, and I guess um, in terms of things getting better, <laughs> not really, I have to say. So every day they still get harassing emails, social posts, et cetera, et cetera. What is the impact does this have on on the employees there? Well, I've taken a, a very deep toll, I have to say. You know, I mean, clearly this affects people's uh, outlook on life when they're dealing with constant harassment, when um, they're facing you know, this kind of onslaught that has not abated. Um, I have to say, in one regard, things have gotten better that uh, Vancouver police have become involved, and they did issue a cease and desist letter to one very aggressive harasser, and I believe that harassment has stopped since that letter was issued, mm-hmm. which is one positive, but it's really um, discouraging that it had to come to that. Now, the fundraiser, um, the two fundraisers that I had mentioned, uh, they were to provide security for two upcoming youth drag camps, to my understanding. Uh, have those camps uh, already occurred, or are they still upcoming? No, they're coming up in the summer. And I, I want to be clear, the, the fundraisers, you know, as you mentioned in your intro, they weren't just for the added security that's necessary. It was also, you know, to continue programming and to keep, you know, it's a nonprofit theater. It's a little theater company that's existed for decades and always uh, um, existed, you know, because of fundraising and because of efforts like that. So that that was part of the fundraising to mm-hmm. go towards the security that's necessary, but it wasn't the entire purpose of the fundraisers. So the, the camps themselves, tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, so they are really uh, camps where where kids, youth, are able to fully be themselves and express themselves artistically in whatever form that takes in a supportive, non-judgmental, completely um, inclusive environment. And uh, past, uh, you know, past events like last year, or the year before, this isn't the first year, is it? No, it's not the first year. It's also been held. It was held last year as well. And I'm just curious, what kind of feedback do you get from kids and parents who, who've sent their kids uh, to the camp? You know, the feedback's been incredible. Honestly, I've, I've spoken to, to parents and to kids who are involved. And to be able to have this inclusive atmosphere where they can be, be free to be themselves in whatever form that takes, without judgment, without fear, 
um, it's been monumental and life-changing for people. Mm. Uh, it is kind of um, an interesting conversation in the sense that we are speaking to the a mom of a, of a nine-year-old girl who was um, harassed at a sporting event in, in Kelowna. It's been in the news the last 24 hours or so. And in many ways, uh, you know, you'd want to you would want to say that, look, it's, it's American culture wars that have spilled over into Canada. But I think that would be too easy to say. And perhaps that may be true, but it's a much deeper conversation, even for our community and our, our country as well, isn't it? It is. You know, I, I really wonder, it does seem to be escalating lately. This kind of hatred and intolerance seems to be seems to be escalating. I don't know if it is or if it's always been there and people are just feeling more free to express it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel that, that there, there's, there's, it's definitely seems to be more prevalent, or we're talking about it more, or we're hearing about it more, and it's hard to to explain what the root cause of it is. Yeah, and you know, we even on this show, we we've, we've had. Um uh, you know, uh, school trustees, uh, chairs of school boards uh, uh, here in Metro Vancouver uh, and in the interior who have talked about even meetings, school board meetings now, that are much more heated, where there are threats uttered against elected officials in and around this issue and others, um, all based around, you know, broader culture wars. But so much of this is now becoming so polarized. And, and it's amazing to me that it, it increasingly is focused upon our schools, or in this case, Carousel Theatre, where, you know, these are all safe spaces, should be safe places away from politics and everything else. These are the arts. And yet it's it's coming um, to places like Carousel as well. Mm-hmm. It, it does. It seems to be spreading all over the place, unfortunately. If uh, people wanted to learn more about these camps uh, or wanted to help or volunteer or donate, where can they go? Yeah, please go to the Carousel Theatre website. You know, it's a, it's a fantastic place that offers year-round programming, drama camps, incredible plays all year long, um, lots of diverse subject matter. It's a really, you know, I brought my boys there when they were little. I've loved it forever. You get a little sticker that says, I saw a play today when you go to a play. <laughs> uh, a super joyous place. And there's, there's drama camp during the year. There's drama camp in the summer. There's all kinds of different programming. Uh, They're always happy to accept a donation, (laughs) so please head to their website. Samantha, thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate it. My pleasure. Let's revisit our lead story from today. At 3 o'clock, we spoke to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth uh, in regards to a letter uh, he uh, sent to Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke and Council. Uh, And basically, uh, he was expressing concern uh, over uh, the vote next week. And it's not the vote that concerns him. It's the fact that what are the facts that will be presented to Surrey City Council, which they will vote on. Of course, those facts will be a report put together by city staff. And uh, Mr. Farnworth and his staff on the public service have basically said, look, let's have a agreed set of uh, information. We've got experts here. We want to make sure you have all the right information. We want to make sure the report... Uh, at, at its core, encapsulates our concerns and your legal requirements moving forward in regards to deciding uh, what police force you will choose. So it's really about, look, let's have an agreed set of facts before you vote. Uh, and the fact that he had to send the letter was interesting enough. And in that letter, I want to do, I want to add, uh, read a, a snippet for you. It says, quote, I am concerned that should council vote on a plan that does not adequately address the mandatory and binding conditions 
on the transition, this already precarious situation could become further destabilized in an expedited timeline. This could create a policing crisis, which puts into question safe and effective policing in the city of Surrey. Now, this letter uh, was sent out, is dated uh, June 13th, and it was sent uh, yesterday uh, to council. Now, uh, the man who got his hands on this letter before anybody else was Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter, and he joins us now. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jess. How are you? I'm good. Uh, walk me through this. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not saying this letter is unprecedented, but boy, what I've just read here certainly tells you uh, there's a tremendous amount of concern from the minister and the staff uh, from the provincial government side, it looks like, in regards to what information will be before Surrey City Council next week. Yeah, things are really coming into focus now in terms of what's going to unfold over the next few weeks. And all of this lines up to me to look like there is, in essence, no way the province believes that the city of Surrey can meet the conditions imposed that would keep the Surrey RCMP uh, operating uh, in the community. And uh, I think my understanding is yesterday uh, the province got word uh, that they were not going to have access uh, to uh, that information the council was voting on. And with that, the minister, in essence, said, well, if we don't have access to this information, we have no idea if you're voting on a plan that would even meet our conditions. And these conditions are extremely hard to meet. I also spoke to the premier today about that here at an event in, on Vancouver Island. What he said was the minister's sole responsibility is to ensure that when the people of Surrey call 911, they get the service they need. And if the city will not share the information around how they will police the community, how can the public safety minister possibly do his job to ensure safety? So those are the concerns outlined in the letter from the Premier, and it's all lining up to me to indicate that no matter if council does this without the province seeing the plan, ultimately the province very well will step in and say, you don't meet the conditions, we need to move forward with Surrey Police Service. So by that vote, by that vote... Um, the minister actually has a direct say into this. I mean, uh, if they don't have an agreed set of facts, if they had an agreed set of facts, unless they, let's say they still went with the RCMP and said, if we have a plan for this transition, it could have moved forward. But basically, they're putting power in the hands of the Solicitor General here to actually come down with a hammer. Yeah, and I think that this is what Mike Farnworth is preparing the city for. Like, these conditions are not... You know, how about you try to see if you can do this, and if you can't, well, we can work with you. The letter describes these are very strict conditions that have been put in place. And it, in essence, ensures that the RCMP does not poach from other detachments, that they ensure that those jobs promised for rural communities are there. You know, there's no belief in the province that they can meet those things. We talked about this yesterday, Jazz, like... There are significant concerns from the province about what Surrey police would do. If the vote goes the RCMP's way, Surrey police has said, well, we're just going to quit. And they can do that because they are not under contract to police in the community right now. The RCMP is. All of this is lining up to inevitability, I believe, that Surrey police will continue to be, uh, will continue to move towards the Surrey police. And eventually the mayor will have to say, there's just nothing that we can do about it. I, you know, she's digging in, obviously, Jazz, we know that. But 
this letter is, is setting up a situation where the minister will say to ensure public safety, we have to go with what we know, the force that we know can meet the conditions, and that's the Surrey Police Service. So um, let's step away from this just for a moment. Uh, you know, we talk about a regional police force one day, potentially for Metro Vancouver and other parts of the province, but we essentially could have three, one for Vancouver Island, one for Metro Vancouver, one for the rest of British Columbia. Does this not, this is a glaring reminder for all of us that we should not handle this to to any one municipality, that any sort of real change moving forward with a regional police force has to be led by the province, not any municipality. The Surrey experience tells you never, ever again hand it to a municipality. No, and I think... We had, the community had such little information to deal with uh, when this decision was made, when Mayor McCallum won, and then again, when Mayor Locke won, there was little information known about what the transition back would look like, and all of that is complicated. And any, as you mentioned, Jazz, any seismic shift in the way we do policing in this province, I think it's inevitable we will eventually move towards some sort of regional or provincial policing model. It's not around the corner, but if it's done, it has to be led by the province with input from the municipalities, not led by the municipalities with input from the province, because it just doesn't work that way. And and ultimately, policing is a municipal decision, but there are so many factors at play here, even in Surrey, that the decision that that community makes has a cascading impact on so many other communities. And this is why the province is now becoming more forceful in its words and eventually will become more forceful in its actions because without having this information the minister wants, even this crucial vote here, it it just doesn't allow the province to ensure safety in Surrey but also safety throughout the region and throughout the province. Uh, Any chance you think the province uh, would throw in a little extra money beyond $150 million that BC taxpayers are now uh, throwing in, uh, but is there potential, you, do you think, for a few extra dollars no. that perhaps convince them? No? I don't think so. You tell me. Like, I don't think money is the issue here. You know, Mayor Locke has not seemed influenced by the money decision. This seems to her to be based on principle. Her belief that the RCMP is best suited for the community, her belief that that promise helped get her elected, and the money doesn't seem to be a major factor in her decision-making. So I don't think the province would be well-served to throw money at this issue uh, because it's not going to change minds in the community uh, when it comes to the mayor and the councillors who support her. So it would, in essence, be wasted money if they do it. I don't know. You may, you may read it different. I don't see money as being a, a deciding factor in all this. Yeah, yeah even, you know, I was thinking maybe an extra 10 or 20 million, which is not easy money to throw around. But I get where you're coming from. I, I think the minister, like Surrey residents and all BC taxpayers and even certain talk shows, we're all tired of having this conversation. <laughs> it has to come to a, a conclusion somewhere. I'm hoping whatever decision they do make that it does come to a, cl- cl- uh, a closure somewhere within the next few weeks, fingers crossed, uh, because there's just no way this this can continue um, the way it's been going, that's for sure. Richard, thank you once again, my friend, and I'm sure we'll be chatting about this um, issue uh, very soon <laughs> indeed. Thank nothing you. nothing like a strong-worded letter, though, for the radio, though, Jazz. So well, we'll, we'll miss this story when it's gone. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, it is. It's for a minister. i got to tell you, I'm looking at the, This is about as firm as they get, you know. Uh, anything else... Uh, You'd say he's let step outside, but <laughs> that's about it. But it is, it's strongly worded. It really is. And I think he's gotten to the point. They all have it.
And now it's up to Surrey City Council in regards to whether or not they want to talk and chat and have an agreed set of facts before they vote. So we'll leave it at that. Richard, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Talk about a, a story I'm sure you have uh, heard about in the last uh, 24 hours or so. Uh, it involves uh, a BC family that's uh, attracting a lot of attention locally, nationally, and internationally as well. Uh, it, it involves um, an incident uh, in Kelowna, which a man questioned um, this family's nine-year-old daughter's gender uh, during a sporting event. Now, the event um, was occurring at a track and field meet at um, at the Apple Bowl Stadium in Kelowna. It was organized by the local school district there, the uh, Central Okanagan School District. Uh, this nine-year-old... Um, uh, it was uh, mother's name was uh, Carrie Hall, and uh, Carrie Hall's uh, nine-year-old daughter, who is cisgender and has a pixie cut, was preparing uh, for a shot put contest uh, when a man approached uh, one of the volunteers there and pointed at the the nine-year-old um, girl and mist- I guess mistakenly said she was a boy. And question why a boy was participating uh, in a girls' event. Uh, and that, of course, led to a significant amount of controversy and, I might add, um, traumatized um, the young girl as well. Joining me now to talk about uh, what occurred is Carrie Hall, who's the mother of the nine-year-old girl who was harassed. Uh, Carrie, thank you, for, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, good to be here. Uh, what have the last 24 hours been like for you? Last 24 hours, um, you know, busy being a mom and um, attending to my daughter's kind of daily needs, her birthday's uh, party, well, birthday's tomorrow and her party's on Friday. So a lot to get ready for that. But then um, add to the mix, kind of dealing what (laughs) transpired from last Thursday and um, a lot of um, interested parties wanting to know how they can help and how they can change and add support, and yeah, it's been uh, quite busy for sure. Can you, uh, for our audience, uh, explain um, how you saw things that day? Um, I mean, with, uh, our daughter um, made the districts with um, in the shot put and discus um, competition for the track and field meet. So um, we all kind of headed towards the Apple Bowl in Kelowna here on Thursday the 8th. Um, and she had her first event early in the morning and took silver in discus. Um, kind of supported her friends through the day with their races and their different competitions. And um, uh, in the afternoon at 2 o'clock, we headed over to the shot put um, little field and the girls all lined up to do their throws and they're having fun and they're all excited. And um, all of a sudden we, I could hear um, somebody kind of getting loud in, in a, just off to the side there. And I heard um, get that boy off the field and didn't think it was my daughter because I, you know, never thought of her as a boy. So I didn't think they were talking about her until we realized that yes, he's directly pointing at her and um, I'm just like shocked. So then Uh, My ex-wife kind of got involved with this gentleman and, uh, you know, kind of that's our daughter and born female and pronouns her and she and um, kind of asked him to stop. And he just kept on about uh, 
requiring certification and and that sort of thing. And um, at that point, I kind of piped up and just said, you need to check yourself, sir. This is a elementary school track meet and nobody's here trying to rig rig any kind of results. So, um, and he kind of quipped back that he's a, been a professional athlete all his life and he knows blah, blah, blah. And um, my ex uh, went over and got the organizers of the event to, to kind of inform them of what was going on. And they came over and asked him to leave and he refused to leave. Um, and so the girls, uh, the organizers of the shop put area were kind of redirecting the girls to a different shop put um, circle. And the girls all lined up there and kind of started trying to throw that way. Um, and he kept on um, in his uh, belligerent fashion and then um, actually moved over with arms crossed to show that he was going to stand there no matter what was said to him. And he stood there and uh, watched the end of the meet um, at that point sort of thing. Um, have you uh, and your daughter ever had to ever deal with something like that in the past? Not to this extreme, no. Um, she's never been around this. Uh, she's grown up with gay parents. And, I mean we never kind of hid things when we were together and her mom and her new partner are out. And I don't think there's a lot of that they're faced with. Um, and if it is, it's just small glances. So never anything to this degree for sure. Um, and so this is just a, a, a random individual who decided upon upon himself that he was going to challenge um, uh, a nine-year-old, and and he and he was he demanding evidence or something like that. I was re- I was reading. Yeah, um, and so he wasn't random. His granddaughter was competing that like in the shop put with my daughter, um, and that, that's who he was there to watch. And then I I didn't hear those comments about he. I heard him demand certification, but not about um, like showing genitals or whatever like i heard the certification part so yeah. that i can speak to how's your daughter doing today you know what she's great um with uh the day that it happened obviously very torn and uh crying the whole way out and stuff but i think it turned uh, because her birthday and some parties and stuff so people were celebrating her and uh, you know and which it should be that that event shouldn't be in her forefront of her mind. And so it got kind of displaced very quickly with way more important things like her birthday and herself, right? And and today, I mean, we do talk about it because um, her mom informed her that she's viral. And so she's aware. And um, so she's just now looking at it more from a, a perspective of how does this change? Like she wrote a little article about um, uh, what, the other children that this might happen or even adults that this happens to. Um, I can't remember specifically, but something to the effect of um, um, you're perfect the way you are. I can't remember what was before that, but you're perfect the way you are. Don't let people stop you kind of thing. So um, yeah, just rising above and being herself. So she's, she's doing well. You know, there have been, as you say, various incidents um, in the United States. There's a, um, heightened conversation in and around this issue. Uh, and many have said that, you know, far-right groups have also been trying to take control or get their members elected some uh, at, at the school board level. Um, in your mind, uh, is this just part and parcel of that broader conversation that 
those gay community, trans community are increasingly being sort of um, focused upon and victimized uh, by the far right? Absolutely. I think um, this is definitely not just uh, American or Canadian. This is worldwide. It's just when something happens and brings attention to it. So I think the important thing um, for people to really keep in mind is um, you you need to be aware of, of some of the rights and the regulations and the policies because, yeah, you might not have a... Um, child that's trans, gay, or of, of all that, but, but it could happen to you. Our daughter was not trans, and this all transpired. So I think the awareness of it and the openness to communicate, because our kids need to feel that, you know, if, if their kid in their class is trans and being picked on, they can come home and talk to you about it and what it made them feel and what they want to see what they did do and what they, they want to see happen in the future. So I think it's an important conversation to open for all, all walks of life. Like everybody should be, keep it in their wheelhouse because it's, it's your neighbors or it could be your kid, right? So what is the lesson here for school boards, uh, for elected officials? I mean, uh, I would hate to have to have security at a sporting event for nine-year-olds. Uh, yeah. But, it, I mean, is, it, is that where we're going to have to go to in some of these cases? What, what do you think is the uh, takeaway for us as authority figures, uh, as parents, but more importantly as elected officials, school boards, and schools specifically? Like, what do you think needs to, to, to happen? Is this a one-off in your mind? Or do you think we need to be getting more serious, being protective of kids? at some of these events? I mean, that is, that's been brought up before, and I, I mean, I don't think security at these events is necessary, but I think having the policies in place so that um, volunteers or parents that are running these events know what their steps are. Like, even for us, we didn't know, like, and plus, I mean, he did, um, but for other people to know that, yes, this is, a hate crime or whatever, um, and police need to be involved because um, I've been informed that part of us not contacting police is why it might not go further, right? It's it, well, They weren't at the scene, so do they need to be at called at any of these kind of attacks? Yeah. Um, as far as the schools, really, the, our school and the uh, his granddaughter's school have been amazing supportive. And, I, and they already had um, language to support and defend the, the children that are trans in their schools. So, I mean, it's starting, but I think this conversation just opens up the necessity for it to be widespread and all schools to kind of adopt this and be aware. Because our principal specifically said that while um, Joseph's um, stand on this was, you know, he's, he's an adult that, athlete, sorry, that uh, competed quite a few years ago, and times were different then. And so now, um, when he brought that up, our principal is able to say, no, we specifically have wording for the district track meet that um, whatever the child identifies as, they can enter the event as, as male or female, whatever they identify as. So it is there, and I think, at least in our schools, and I hope that maybe all the schools realize the importance of, you know, having these policies and these this wording prior to the incident or an incident that could happen. Well, Carrie, uh, I know it's uh, been a difficult time. I really appreciate you making time for us today and 
And uh, if you can pass along, happy birthday uh, from all of us here at CKW to your sure. daughter. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much. Yeah, you bet. Take care. Let's uh, head further into the valley to Abbotsford. And over the last uh, probably about six months or so, we've been hearing a lot about uh, a homeless encampment there. Uh, there have been um, issues and challenges when it comes to violence and, and safety and the growth of that um, encampment as well. Now, I know yesterday, um, a Housing Minister of Ikelon was out there making an announcement. Joining me now is our uh, contributor, Jerry Mayer Jensen. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic, Jazz. How are you? I'm doing very well. You know, it's nice to talk about, although we love talking about all our communities, we spend a lot of time talking about Surrey these days. So mm-hmm. it's good mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about uh, a, little a little further east. Yeah, so I understand uh, uh, you talked to the mayor today? I did, I did. So I, of course, I was very interested specifically about the Lonzo Seamass encampment uh, just off Highway 1 there that that they they gave them notice, they gave the residents there, I guess, to notice that you have to, you do have to clear out by the 26th of June. However, uh, this is going to be the space where we put a temporary shelter, uh, 50 beds, and that should be uh, up in the fall. And uh, if you would like to hear some of the chat that I had with Abbotsford, Abbotsford Mayor Ross Siemens... Yes, I want to talk about, of course, the Lonzo Sumas encampment plan, because when I read about it, it struck me as pretty uniquely sort of humanitarian because the province is sheltering people and storing their belongings until this new temporary shelter is uh, constructed at the same site. Is that right? Yep, and it aligns with the character of the city of Abbotsford. That must have taken a whole massive lot of planning because there's a lot of multifacets and different organizations coming together to help these individuals. Yeah, we have very good community engagement and outreach teams here, and and everybody worked together. Um, At the end of the day, this is about uh, people, first and foremost. You've been involved in Abbotsford municipal government for what looks like the better part of a decade. So you've seen, obviously, how the, the, the city has grown and, and changed in that time. Can you sort of speak to the growing population in Abbotsford, um, especially in the last five years? It's exceeded the national and even the British Columbia average. So how does that come back to housing in Abbotsford and how does that relate? Well, we're the largest geographic municipality. We were very strategic in our official community plan, understanding that we need to densify from the core out. So yeah, it's it's been um, it's been a lot of work. We've put a lot of time and effort and thought into the process. Um, you know, building out our transit line um, and, and allowing densification along that. Growing community is always um, is, has challenges, and we have to make sure that we're also providing jobs for the people that live here too. The last thing we need is more people on the freeway. We know that we have those transit issues already. And so, um, yeah, we're just working hard on, on all fronts. You said, of course, you said, I mean, naturally, the the efforts to help these these folks that were in the park and ride to access shelter and access the resources that they need do reflect, of course, the character of Abbotsford. Have you, though, experienced any backlash about this very much humanitarian decision? Um, no, I, I think um, the people in Abbotsford, we were one of the most generous municipalities in all of the country. I think statistically, um, per capita giving and, and volunteerism is the highest of any municipality, and that goes you know, with all the major urban centers. So I think you know, the, the values of the people that live here understand the complexities of the, um, of the challenges that many people face um, that are experiencing homelessness. So, 
Yeah, I think it, it just aligns so much with, with the values. I, I haven't received any backlash on that front. So that was Abbotsford Mayor Ross Siemens. Well, that you know, first of all, that's it's good news, and especially when you hear of all the, um, you know, the, the basically when you look at the violent incidents that we've been hearing about, uh, and the fact that they they found knives and axes and bear spray and machete mm-hmm. and machetes and other things there, and, and real and imitation firearms uh, as well. Now, so uh, they put this up. You were saying in the fall, right? The, the yeah, they're gonna. It's it should be complete by the late, late summer, early fall. Now, is that permanent or is that going to be sort of semi permanent? What stays up for a couple of years and then they find housing for yes. these people? Yeah, so it's going to be temporary for about eighteen months until they find more permanent shelter for these folks. And there's an existing shelter uh, that has 40 beds, and they are going to work on converting that into supportive housing. Okay, that's Mm -hmm. really good to hear. It is interesting, isn't it, after COVID, how many communities are dealing with the issue of homelessness and mental health and addiction? I guess I think partially what it's done is actually highlight how far behind you were pre-COVID, and COVID is now just highlighting how much more work is ahead of us and how much neglect there's, neglect there's been in the past. Absolutely. And how fragile, right? Like a lot of uh, the things that we take for granted are, it's, you know, you're, you might be a fewer, I mean, at least speaking for me by myself, but you're fewer paychecks away from being in an awful situation. And we definitely learned that with COVID and all of the, all of the downscaling and layoffs and all that yeah, stuff. And, and what I don't like hearing about is, you know, the, you know, Vancouver is broken mm-hmm. and things of that sort. You know, do we have challenges? Yes, we do. Do we have to refocus our resources on things that we probably have neglected in the past? Yes. But you know what? Uh, I was down in Seattle maybe three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Similar challenges down there. I've had friends who go to Portland. They were going to do a couple of nights to watch a basketball game. They came a night early back home because they were with their kids, young kids, and it's a mess down there. Really? In regards to challenges with homelessness and and, and street life. L.A., same sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, Toronto's dealing with similar things. Mm-hmm. New York's dealing with similar things. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia. So this notion that Vancouver is broken, I think, is absurd. Uh, but there's no doubt we have challenges. So it's great to see that they're able to address this uh, in, um, in in Abbotsford. But I'm sure Chilliwack will have its challenges. Oh, yeah. Mission, Surrey. Yeah, everywhere. And you can see everywhere. So it's, it's not something that's going to go away. Um, uh, anytime soon, but I guess, I'm guess I'm glad they're actually uh, addressing it. At, uh, nevertheless, Cherry, thank you. Thank you, Jazz. You know, this segment is actually appropriate uh, based on our conversation right before uh, the uh, the news. There, I was saying that tomorrow we have a couple segments on the fact that Canada's population will officially hit 40 million people either tomorrow or Friday, but within the next 24 to 48 hours. And as more people move here, one of the core issues, of course, is where are they all going to live? Uh, British Columbia's uh, population grew by a hundred thousand people. Uh, last month, and I don't think that's going to be slowing down. I think our immigration policy this year is at about 420,000. Uh, next year, that number jumps up to about 440,000. That's nationally. And by 2025, we're going to welcome 500,000 immigrants to this country. And generally, about 20% of those uh, immigrants uh, that come to Canada come to British Columbia. In fact, last year, um, I believe 19% of all the immigrants that came to Canada came to British Columbia. And of that 19%, 16 of that 19% was actually moving here. Here to Metro Vancouver. So building more housing means more housing has to be approved and approved quickly. Well, in the, um, the city of Vancouver, yesterday they approved their 331, 
sorry, 3331 uh, permit approval um, uh, uh, plan, which is basically three days approval for home renos, three weeks for single-family homes and townhomes, three months for multifamily and mid-rises, and, a, and one year to approve high-rises or large-scale projects. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the permit approval process is Peter Meisner, Vancouver City Councilor with ABC. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Uh, it is a great day tomorrow, or perhaps the day after. We're not sure when it'll happen, but certainly with the next 24 to 48 hours. Lots of people still moving to this country, 40 million we will hit this week. Um, walk me through how ABC came up with those numbers and sort of why you felt this is sort of the target you want to be reaching. Yeah, like you say, um, immigration is uh, set to increase uh, substantially. And there's no doubt that we need immigrants uh, in Vancouver and, and across Canada. So some of those numbers you were mentioning, 100,000 uh, coming to BC per year, 60,000 of those people will settle in the lower mainland. And I think everyone in Vancouver knows that we already have a serious housing crisis in the city. So we need to do everything we can to expedite uh, the delivery of housing. So the 3331 was a campaign promise, promise that we made, uh, made during the campaign to speed up permitting. And what we did yesterday is we made it official city policy. So it, the city will have to benchmark their results uh, for permitting wait times against this 3331 uh, timeline. So that's the three days for renos, uh, three weeks for single-family homes, and three months for uh, mid-rise, and uh, one year for high-rises. Because as you may know, uh, it can take up to six years to get a, a rental high-rise built in Vancouver, and we need to do everything we can uh, to get that timeline down. So some have said, look, to even get a, uh, you know, a house torn down and new plans sent in, it can take a couple of years in Vancouver, if not longer. How do you plan to do this now and transfer that to, instead of two years, it would take three weeks? Is this going to be something uh, that is streamlined? And what I mean by that is rather than going to a human being, it would be done by a computer program. How do you cut the timeline so, 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 so much? Yeah, so it's a bit of a hybrid approach that we're going to be taking. Uh, we did announce uh, two new digital tools that are going to essentially reduce uh, the manual review time. So that's the computer AI kind of uh, process that you're talking about. Uh, one of them is going to allow uh, builders or developers to essentially click on a lot on a map of the entire city, and they'll be able to see the zoning and the development plan that applies to that particular piece of land. So they'll know exactly crystal clear what they can build there. Another one is going to allow them, a different tool is going to allow them to actually upload their plans, uh, building plans to the platform, almost like in SimCity if you ever played that game. Mm-hmm. And it's going to show them what is permitted uh, within that building envelope in terms of like the height they can go to, the width to the lot. Uh, and that is going to really cut down on that review time because what's happening is applicants aren't super clear on the requirements for particular piece of land and that's on the city we need to do everything we can to make that more clear but what's happening is there's a lot of back and forth between applicants in the city over and over again as they get more uh, defined on what they can actually build on that piece of land so that's going to help cut that down those technical tools so but but if i'm handing in my application you still physically will have to do do so it'll still be looked over by a public servant uh, it's not like i mean the approval still will have to come from a human being it's not like yeah this computer program is gonna you know i've heard programs where they're looking at you know in some communities where they're testing artificial intelligence in regards to approvals I'm, i don't think we're there yet in vancouver it's a much bigger community. we're not there yet there was some news about Kelowna using ai but the ai is actually a chatbot so when an applicant would go to the city of Kelowna website uh, to submit a development application, it would be a chatbot that would reply reply to them. So it sounded very exciting when I first heard about it, but there is going to be human touch for sure. Um, so it's more of a submission of the application that's going to be done digitally. And also we're actually um, 
uh, offering more in-person appointments. So if builders, developers have questions, they'll be able to schedule an appointment at the Building Services Center to speak to somebody uh, within you know a reasonable time frame. So it's a mix of digital and in-person, but overall we're just improving the service that's available to people that want to build housing in Vancouver. And are you hiring more people just in regards to dealing with the demand there? I know COVID, there was a lot of backlog. Uh, even now, uh, it, it can be difficult to build just with the, with the interest rate challenges that are there. But that just tells me there's going to be a huge backlog. And eventually, once things calm down with interest rates, hopefully a year from now, six months from now, whatever that may be, you're going to have a huge inflow of people who want to be building. Uh, does that mean you'll be potentially looking to hire more people? Yeah, I mean, they're already working on filling vacancies. So it isn't just adding people uh, as we need. It, we actually have uh, a deficit of, of people. So we have vacant positions. Um, obviously, during COVID, there was a lot of movement in the labor market. And uh, some, some people left, and those jobs are hard to fill. They're specialized. Uh, there's education, uh, particular training that needs to happen for those people from BCIT and other educational institutions. So it is hard to find people, but we're filling those positions. And also these tools, again, are, are going to help things be more efficient. So it isn't about expanding the workforce necessarily. It's about staffing up to the, uh, the capacity that we need and using tools to help uh, create more efficiencies just to make everybody's life easier. And so if you were able to hit these numbers, the 3331, would this make Vancouver the, the city with the fastest approval time in the Lower Mainland? In the Lower Mainland, I'm not sure offhand, but it would certainly be a huge improvement over where we're at today. I know some of our partner municipalities, um, they've actually started, uh, their approval, approval times have gotten a bit longer. Um, and that's probably because of the volume of applications that are coming in. You mentioned the interest rates uh, that are going up. And, uh, you know, I, we don't know when that's going to end. I mean, it, it could end next year. It could be a few years of that. So that's putting additional pressure uh, on developers that are finding it hard to make the numbers work. So the last thing we want to do is add years and years of delays on the city side, which is going to cost them a fortune in holding costs with these interest rates being so high. So we are trying to increase those timelines. It'll make a massive difference. Um, but you can look at jurisdictions in the states where uh, they're turning things around in a few weeks. Uh, you know, Vancouver takes city building and urbanism very seriously. I think we have an amazing urban environment, and we do want to make uh, still be careful about the decisions we're making and making sure that they're the best for the community. So it's been approved by City Hall now. Uh, it, it is implemented as of September, or is it beginning now? Well, the benchmarking will begin now. The two new tools that I mentioned, uh, they'll be launching later this summer. The first one called PRET, uh, that's Project Requirements Exploration Tool. Very exciting. <laughs> exciting name. And then Archistar, that's the one where you can upload your plans. That launches early next year. So what the, the benchmarking is going to allow us to do is just really see how we're progressing towards that 331 goal. And it's going to hold us and staff accountable to make sure we get there. But I am expecting to start to see significant progress. We've already seen a good, some good progress, but significant progress by this time next year on this. Peter, thank you. My pleasure, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.